You're kind of blurry. Am I? No offense. <laughs> I'm in a kind of a small, dark room, so oh, okay. that may be my blurring. That's probably um, a lack of light. I mean, do I float? Should I float? Oh, does Ooh. that help? Yeah, no, not at all. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to Disaster Tales, where we bring you interesting stories and personal experiences related to disasters and the issues that surround them. I'm Kate Fairweather. My co-host today is Barb Lonsky. Today we're going to be talking about circus train accidents. There were a couple of really big ones back at the beginning of the 20th century, and we have a lot of information on that for you. Did you know that there was a train wreck in Byron, New York in 1919 that left 20 people dead? That, no, I did not. Was that also a circus wreck? I don't remember, but that sounds like a road trip to me. Road trip. Hmm. Byron, huh? I'll have to look that up. Yeah. Well, the golden age of circuses began when they stopped traveling from town to town, like schlogging with horses, pulling trailers. 20, 30 miles, to traveling on the railroad system. The first circus that went on the railroad was the Barnum Circus, and his partner, William Cameron Coop, is the one who thought railroads, circus, match made in heaven. So they started traveling the first year, and it took them so long to load and offload all their equipment that it was it was like they they got there, they started loading in the morning, they didn't. They got done just before the circus was supposed to start, and then they knocked it all down that night, so they weren't getting a lot of sleep. So Coop went and designed circus trains specifically for circus equipment. So I'm, and I didn't see any photos or total descriptions, but I imagine it was there was one where you could put parts of a tent, and then it was specially made so that you could put like the beams in one place and a, a place for the tent to be folded up and place for the animals and everything else. So they were specially designed for the circus, for easy on and offloading in it. And it made their work a lot, it cut their work in by at least half, if not more. And, it, and if you didn't know this, Barnum was actually 60 when he started that circus. He didn't, he wasn't into circuses. He just had his museum. Right. And he was 60 years old when he took on a new endeavor. That's a good age. Yeah, it is. For especially when you are. That's where, I, that's where I'm at right now. That's where you are, <laughs> yes. <laughs> so let's talk about first the Hagenbeck-Wallace circus train wreck. The circus was established in 1907 by a livery stable and lumberyard owner named Benjamin Wallace of Peru, Indiana. He one day decided he was going to buy a circus. And so he started buying pieces of circus, buying equipment from one defunct circus, circus and other equipment from others. And then he got in contact with Carl Hagenbeck, who had a wild animal exhibit, exotic animals. And he purchased that whole operation and turned it into the Hagenbeck-Wallace Circus. So the uh, Hagenbeck-Wallace accident occurred on June 22nd of 1918. And as a result of that accident, there were 86 deaths, 127 injuries. It occurred just outside Hammond, Indiana. They were on their way to a show in in Hammond or right in that area. 
they were heading west and had had a hot box, which is where a brake froze up on one of the cars. And um, they pulled off onto a side rail, like a spur, but the train was so long that they couldn't get completely off the main track. And they had a man out there to signal, and they had people, you know, who, who tried to put up markers to let them know that there was a train on the track. But the problem was that the engineer, whose name was Alonzo Sargent, he had admitted that he had had little sleep the past 24 hours, that he'd eaten several heavy meals because he was going to be on the train for a long period of time and would not have the opportunity to eat. And then there was a, an allusion to the fact that he was taking something for his kidneys, like pills for his kidneys. Mm-hmm. Um, but he was aware that he was following a circus train. And the circus trains were made with wooden cars, and the caboose and the, and the sleeper cars were at the rear of the train. And he was driving a train that had steel cars. And so the weight, it was an empty train. He had dropped off troops and was on his way back, but he fell asleep at the till. And he missed two automatic signals, and he also missed a railman who was trying to signal him manually. So he he was definitely found at fault in the situation. The circus train was actually trying to pull off onto a side track, but the hot box kept them from getting all the way off because the brake locked mm-hmm. up, like you said. And so they were trying to get out of the way and they couldn't. The circus train had 15 flat cars, four sleepers, five stock cars, and a caboose. The flagman had hurried back once the train got stuck and set fuses like flares, but it didn't do any good. And as you said, the sleeping cars were made of wood, and the oncoming train was was iron engine and steel cars. And once they hit, and like you said, ran into each other. Telescoping, they call it, yeah. Right, they, they telescoped in there, one inside the other. Once they did that, they had a gas light system in the, on the train. And so the gas is what fed the fire after the train wrecked. And the fact that the, they were wooden train cars, that they were easily combustible and... Not as sturdy. They ignited the cars and not as sturdy. And the people were trapped. When the cars telescoped, they were trapped in between the two cars, many of them, and were crushed that way or they were trapped physically in that uh, train car. And so they were not able to evacuate. They were not able to get out. And so the the fire, because it was so hot and burned so quickly, these people were not able to, to get out. And it was said that the people in the area who came when they heard the crash could hear the people yelling and crying and suffering um, as they were burned up in these cars or died from the traumatic injuries that were yeah. gotten through that accident. And that happened out in the middle of nowhere because it was five miles west of Gary, Indiana. And it severed the telegraph lines, so there weren't there wasn't anybody that knew in Gary to come out for them. So people actually arrived from Hammond, the other from the other direction. By the time the firefighters arrived, it was entirely engulfed in flames. They couldn't put out the fire, partly because there was no water there. And then, as soon as people started hearing, they sent relief trains with doctors, nurses, additional firefighters, and equipment from Gary and from Hammond and from East Chicago and other surrounding towns. The firefighters didn't even bother to try to pull out the fire. They just started 
trying to pull out the injured and dig out the dead. And the thing is that they said that the majority of those deaths were due to the blunt force trauma of the crash because they were sleeping and the crush of the cars killed many of the people. Some did die because of the fire that resulted from the accident. They said that most of the bodies were unidentifiable because the fire mostly it cremated people pretty much in the wreckage mm-hmm. and that 25 of the bodies were sent to Gary and 23 of the bodies were sent to Hammond. They had a total of 62 killed and 179 injured, but we also have a number that said 86 deaths and 127 injuries. After they took the roll, they found that there was 60 people unaccounted for, and that was including the unidentified bodies. And I think, too, that because of the the nature of circuses and traveling and things like that, that maybe they didn't have a complete count of the actual number of people because people were kind of itinerant. They join in one town and maybe they quit at the next or a couple, you know, places down mm-hmm. the road. So they may have not had even an accurate number of all of the people who were in the, the trains at the time that it happened. Yeah. The roll call of circus personnel showed that 60 people were missing in addition to the 24 identified as deceased. So that's 60 plus 24, which is 84, which gives us yet another number. So it was right in the Mm -hmm. 85, 86, 84 area. Which, uh, because of the lack of identification, you know, there could be people who had actually gotten on the train and, you know, maybe family members or something like that of the cast. So you you just don't know the exact number. And because there was no actual body count because of the intensity of the fire. But that that ballpark figure is probably all we're going to have. The police went to look for Engineer Alonzo Sargent and his fireman, Emil Klaus. It was found that they survived the scene but left. They were later arrested and held for inquest on the 24th of June. On 23rd of June, the 62 bodies that they had, only 24 of which were identified, were buried at Showman's Rest. And it was interesting because... The identification of those bodies, there were a lot of them who didn't, they didn't really know their real names. And so they were identified as as Baldy or Smiley or Four Horse Driver, you know, because of the nature of the circus, they didn't have their actual names. And so they were interred all together in that mass grave in a place called the Showman's Rest, which was in Forest Park, Illinois, Woodlawn Cemetery. Why don't you tell us what some of those fatalities included, who they were? Well, some of the fatalities included the Strongman Act. They were called the Great Deer Six Brothers. There was Jenny Ward Todd, who was of the Flying Todds. They were a trapeze artist group. Some others identified just by show name. There was a couple who were killed in this accident. It says that my great-grandfather and grandmother died in this train wreck. This was from a, a Reddit post. She rode horses and played in the band. My grandpa was only eight when they died. He lost his parents at such a young age. However, he picked up my great-grandfather's talent for music and became a musician himself. Well, there you go. So there was people who were died. There were some orphans, yeah. Yeah. After Mm -hmm. the accident, there was a rumor that two lions had escaped in the woods. And so people in the area were taking precautions. They were worried that they were going to meet the lion. But a spokesman from the circus said that there weren't any animals on that train. So that was just a wild rumor. They had said that they sent ahead the animal train. That was in front of the circus train, the sleeper Mm -hmm. train. So the animals were not involved in the accident. 
So they had an inquest, and they got the fireman's statement. His name is Klaus. And it said, we're running along at a good rate of speed between Hammond and Gary. I did not see the circus train on the siding until we were nearly on top of it. I saw that the collision could not be avoided, and I grew dizzy and sick in my stomach at the thought of what was certain to happen. I did not notice the engineer, and I do not know what he did. I crawled down from my seat in the locomotive cab and dragged myself into the tender where I fell face down into a pile of coal. That's the last thing I remember. So he he didn't see it until they were almost until they were ready to hit it, and he jumped back behind into right. the car that was behind the engine. And truly, it was not his responsibility to to record those things. That was the engineer's responsibility. He was the fireman. He kept the the tinder mm-hmm. going. Um, I mean, but the fact that he was up there when it happened and saw it at the last minute shows that you know he was. In the vicinity, but that doesn't mean that he was he was the one that was responsible for, you know, observing the signals and reacting to them. Right. Well, then I have, have a quote from the testimony. Now, Alonzo would not testify to the to the inquest because his lawyer told him that he needed to hold on to his Fifth Amendment rights not to incriminate himself. But he did write a written report to the railroad, mm-hmm. and part of that talks about what happened right before the wreck. It says, leaving Michigan City, had to clear, had a clear track to East Gary, where we caught the block of train ahead, reduced speed, but did not have to stop, as the block cleared before I reached it. Reduced speed going through Gary to comply with rules and saw no more signals of caution or danger until approaching the east curve at Ivanhoe, I'm sorry, approaching the curve east of Ivanhoe, where I found a second signal east of the wreck at caution. It was going about 25 miles an hour at this point, but did not reduce speed, as I expected the next signal would probably clear before we got to it, which means the train would have gotten out of the way by the time they got there, and they would have if their brakes hadn't frozen, or that I would see it if in danger in time to stop. The wind was blowing very hard into the cab on my side, and I closed the window, which made the inside of the cab more comfortable. Before reaching the next signal, I dozed off on account of the heat in the cab and missed it, not realizing what had happened to me until within 75 to 90 feet, which is not time enough to stop. I woke suddenly and saw the tail marker or lights showing red on the train directly ahead of me. Not realizing the rear end of the train was so close... I started to make a service application, which putting on the brakes, but before completing it, placed brake valve handle into the emergency position. We struck almost instantly after making the brake application. I don't know whether it closed, I closed the throttle. Man, I don't know whether I throw, you want to read that one? (laughs) I don't know whether I closed the throttle or not, but I think I did. Yeah, he said he'd look to see where the fireman was, and he saw him. He saw him crawling out of the cab. He says he didn't running towards the gangway, right? So that he, yeah, so that he could get into the coal car. So that was that was his excuse. He said uh, he he even though he fell asleep, he had no intent to injure any person. So it was not an intentional an intentional act or done with malice, as far as the law goes. Now, interestingly, some other reports say that even though Alonzo admitted to being asleep before the crash, 
He claimed to have been drugged by unknown assailants. Those allegations, because it was wartime, prompted federal agents to track down a possible German spy. None of that was ever proven, and it sounds kind of way out there to me. Right. And according to an article in the Chicago Tribune, he also claimed that steam clouds hid the signals. So he was making a lot of excuses. So he was charged. In Green Lake County, they ordered the two men to be charged with murder and arrested. Mm -hmm. They were charged before a grand jury for involuntary manslaughter with a bond set at $3,000 for Sargent and 5000 for Klaus, which is interesting that Klaus would have had a higher bond. That's exactly what I thought. Yeah, because he really wasn't as responsible as Sargent was, in my estimation. Mm-hmm. This is, although the circus missed the next two shows, they were supplemented by following circus performers, and they completed their tour. I also have that they were tried at that Lake County, Indiana court where they admitted to he- admitted to falling asleep and missing the signals, but a mistrial was declared and the defendants were not retried. The charges were dismissed on June 20th of 1920. So they were completely dismissed and they never did any time or had any penalty for the the accident, which killed so many people. Yeah, that's right. Well, what I find interesting is that, like I said, the fireman, he was honest about what happened. He saw it come in. Turn tail and ran because that was his first instinct. The engineer, though, first he it was suspicious that he would not answer questions at the inquiry at any of them at all. And then he admitted that he fell asleep and that that was he says the accident was due solely to the fact that I accidentally fell asleep in this report to the train company to the railroad. But then he started talking about, well, you know, I must have fallen asleep because there was, I was drugged by somebody that I don't know. So they were maybe because it was a troop train, even though it was empty. And so, you know, the feds took him seriously and, and started looking around for a spy. So that, that was kind of odd. And then later on, he said, oh, well, the steam clouds hid the signals. But before that, he said he saw the signals. So, and where was, I don't know where steam would have come from. He didn't see the signals leading up to, he didn't see anything until he opened his eyes and saw the train in front right. of him, which is, you know, he was sound asleep. <laughs> I don't know why if the, well, I guess at that point, if the fireman saw the wreck impending, he wouldn't have awakened him, but maybe he just didn't, you know, I don't know. It was too late anyways, regardless of whether he had awakened at that moment or not. Mm-hmm. So, but. Yeah, but this guy, but he sounds really fishy, really, really fishy. Well, the fact that they both survived, you mm-hmm. know, being in the engine that made that kind of an impact, it was a lower speed impact than than some. I mean, he was only doing about 35 miles an hour, I guess, when they impacted, but still, you know, I don't know. It's 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 a sad situation. Yeah, it is. When you have, and you remember this from math class, when you have one train going at 60 miles an hour in one direction and the other one, oh, I'm sorry, they, you're right. You can disregard yeah. that whole math thing. I don't care. Okay. So, so 20, <laughs> 35 miles an hour is a pretty good speed to be going on a, uh, with something made of that much steel that you can't stop. So <laughs> Right. So yep. that's what makes and, it deadly. And hitting something that was of, of much less quality material of being made of wood instead of steel. So 
You know, the, the fact is that these poor circus workers were carried around in these cars that were made of, you know, lightweight wood, but there was a lot of trains out there that were made of steel and mm-hmm. all the cars were made of steel. And so they always fared a lot better in that situation than the cars that were made of wood, obviously. And plus the oil lighting, the gas lighting was Right. Fatal. And in this one, <laughs> in this one, it wasn't engine versus engine. It was, it was engines versus wood cars. And so it, it just plowed right through them. It like splintered them as it went through. After they decided how many folks had passed away, they had to deal with the disposition of the bodies. So why don't you tell us about Showman's Rest? Yes, they created a place called Showman's Rest, which actually to this day is used to to put inter the remains of people who have been in the the trades, you know, in uh, acting and in the theater and things like that. It was in Forest Park, Illinois, at the Woodlawn Cemetery, and the grave site was created to bury the remains of those people who passed away in the accident. There were 53 sets of remains interred at that moment or at that time. And most of them, many of them, of them were unidentified. And as I said before, they interred them with, you know, their their show names because they didn't have their real names. You know, things like Baldy and Smiley and Four Horse Driver. Mm-hmm. And then they they created a memorial to them with um, two elephants statues that were posed in a in a posture of grief with their with their trunks down, their heads down, with one foot up, and that was the posture of grief for elephants. Mm-hmm. And so they they tried to memorialize the people in a in a respectful way. There were two shows that were canceled in the weeks that followed the accident, but their schedule resumed again in Beloit, Wisconsin, and they had other circuses who contributed performers and acts and things like that, so that they could have the show go on, which is their motto to let you know the show must go on. Right. So, well, there was a showman's group, and I can't find the name of it right offhand, but they actually sent officers to the wreck site to deal with the disposition of the remains, and they bought that property where showman's rest was specifically to bury those folks. And then, right. then other it was the showman's league. Yes, that was it. Sorry. Yeah, the showman's league. The showman's league. Mm hmm. So show people were helping show people, which they've always done. And then after they, mm-hmm. after the funeral, and they went back on the road, they only missed two shows, I think. And they had circus performers right. from other circuses come and fill in for the rest of the season so the survivors wouldn't lose money. There's an interesting aside, too. It was reported there was $25,000 on the train, which presumably was proceeds from the shows or whatever, and that was never recovered. Right, and so that's... So, I don't know if somebody... It's either a fact... Pilfered it, or if it just disappeared <laughs> in the wreckage. Yeah, it mm-hmm. could have burned, and it and it could have been stolen, mm-hmm. which I doubt seriously, because everybody was trapped in the wreckage, or it never could have been mm-hmm. there at all. There, so there's three options. And I would bet, no matter how much money they had, right. that it... it was destroyed in the accident, in the fire. It's weird that in this and other disasters that I've seen, that the, the initial incident causes some deaths, but then there's people trapped in burning wreckage like they were in the 1906 earthquake, and they, you, and they couldn't get them out fast enough. 
And that's not a good way to die, I don't think. Right. Oh, I would say no. And the fact is that maybe some of these people even, you know, even though there was an 86 or 85 count estimated death toll, people who were traumatically injured, especially in that time in the late um, early 1900s, probably weren't access to medical care that would help them to live. And so many of them probably died of trauma or burn mm-hmm. after the fact. Yeah, I think and I so think that right. death toll was at the time of the, the accident, but there probably were more more uh, fatalities subsequent to that. So. Yeah. And, and when you're talking about like the circus or the carnival, they do, people will stop and stay in one place and quit, but they'll also pick up other people. Our grandfather, um, Gilbert, he actually ran away with the carnival when he was a young man. He was a teenager, and mm-hmm. uh, his mother had to go get him. Right. Wasn't uncommon for people to run away with the circus. And, and our other grandfather rode the rails. Who knows? He may have been involved in that stuff, too. I know he did a bunch of exhibition pool matches and things like that, and he was a gambler. So, you know, he might have been involved in that stuff, too. Well, he, he actually was. He was a carny. And I heard that that the carnies used a, a term when there was trouble that they would yell out and they would say, hey, Rube, if somebody was giving them a hard time. And the other workers would come and help him get out of it if it was a fight or somebody too drunk that needed to be hauled away or whatever. And, uh, yeah, he did. And I imagine he probably, knowing him and his dexterity, he probably ran one of the side games because he had an incredible eye right. coordination. So I'm sure he was conning people out of that by saying, look, it's easy. <laughs> and then they couldn't do it. I know for the, the pitching of the, the quarter pitching where he would pitch it and stand it up against a, a wall mm-hmm. that they, I mean, he won lots of money doing that. Yeah. So, yeah. He could actually, if they drew a line, they drew a line in the dirt and he could actually throw it. So it would stand up inside that line. He, it was, mm-hmm. I don't know. he, did some amazing stuff. He was an excellent pool player and and all around stage yep. guy. Yeah, slim flammer. <laughs> <laughs> so you know, and this was a circus as opposed to a carnival, which is there is a difference, but because they're performers and carnival workers are not so much performers, mm-hmm. and they still have the midway games and stuff though. Exactly, so, you know. and that's where I figure Russell was was on the midway game. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Say, look, right. I can, I can throw mm-hmm. this quarter into this fishbowl, and <laughs> would you like to talk to our friends about Patreon? If I can pronounce it, I will. <laughs> <laughs> so, everybody who enjoys Disaster Tales, and even if you don't enjoy Disaster Tales, <laughs> you can support us at Patreon under the Disaster Tales tab. And uh, we appreciate any contributions that you can make because this is a listener-supported podcast. So if you'd like to support Disaster Tales, head over to Patreon and Patreon. Yeah. Which one is it? It is. Let me give Patreon. you the... It's okay. um, www.patreon.com slash Disaster Tales. There you go. And yes, this is becoming a, definitely a nonprofit endeavor, and it's actually a loss of <laughs> profit endeavor. Profit? Yeah, yeah, no profit whatsoever, <laughs> but I like doing it so much that I don't care. <laughs> well, I do care, so if you care, <laughs> you can go to 
Patreon slash Disaster Tales. Yes. And we would appreciate any help you could give us. That's right. This is our 10th Tenth. episode, is Tenth. that right? That's right. Time flies when you're having well, fun. Uh, came up on my feed and <laughs> Facebook yesterday that this is our one-year anniversary for when we launched our Disaster Tales podcast. Oh, cool. So, I didn't even exciting. notice that. Yeah, it is. Happy anniversary. This mm-hmm. is our paper anniversary, Thank you. right? Happy anniversary to you. <laughs> this is our paper right. anniversary. <laughs> so we're gonna have to, we're just gonna print That's out right. all of our notes. <laughs> and I'll give you mine and you can give me yours. We're asking you to donate paper for uh, the support of honestly, the details as well. <laughs> you'd have to donate absolute reams of paper. <laughs> To, for us to print out everything that we've got as re, as uh, research and information. So how many downloads have we, we had? Oh, gosh. Let me check. I know we're over 1,000 because we hit our 1,000 mark we recently. We did. So that was pretty exciting. So now we're up to 1,365. Wonderful. In the last 30 days, we've had 95. But if you go back to the 15th, that actually is closer, it goes up to around 140 because 15th is our release date. Yep, we've talked about everything from man-made disasters to influenza epidemics to fires, earthquakes, and the only thing we really haven't looked at yet, well, probably like tsunamis and tornadoes. Hopefully, I'm going to be able to interview a gentleman who was went through the Joplin tornado, not this last one, because when he saw the last one this year, he said, it's so nice to be able to see it from farther away. So he was very close when that tornado hit, and he's got a lot of good information for us. That's so super. That'll be nice. Very good. Yeah. Yeah, it says 276 downloads in the last 30 days. So that's that's pretty awesome. good. Awesome. So we're growing. Yeah, that's we are. Exciting. Yeah. And your support helps us to continue to produce these beautiful, wonderful, informative podcasts. That's right. <laughs> they are lovely. They're hand carved, mm-hmm. definitely. And that's um, right. <laughs> and and really, the expenses with are a spoon. <laughs> with, with a sharp spoon. <laughs> we we buy a lot of books, and they're and they're kind of high. <laughs> Yeah, because the libraries just don't have everything that we're interested in. There's mm-hmm. a few other services that we need in order to get this produced. So, yeah, we could we could use all the help we can get. And uh, by the way, you can also join us on Facebook. There's a new page. It's called Disaster Tales Podcast Fans, and that's a that we have a moderator on there. And all you have to do is go and check us out on Facebook. Disaster Tales podcast fans, and we'll be able to chat with you guys and make plans about what you want us to do in the future. Yes, we're very open to suggestions <laughs> for topics. Yes. Not otherwise, but for topics. Well, another thing <laughs> is, though, and if our listeners want to send us their disaster stories, we will, we will have a listener episode and we will read your stories in our podcast. The whole podcast will be devoted to you guys and what happened to you. There are some interesting things that happen to people in the face of disasters, uh, miraculous rescues and and just providential uh, safety and different things like that. And we are really excited to hear those stories. So send them our way. 
there's another mm-hmm. circus train accident that we found, or you found. Yep. Yep. It was the Con T. Kennedy Circus Wreck. Right. And it occurred on November 22nd, 1915 at Bull Creek near Columbus, Georgia. Mm-hmm. They were on their way to a show in Phoenix City, um, and they were eastbound. The engineer was William Braddock, and there were 28 wooden cars with oil lamp lighting as well, like the other trains. Well, they not only had had oil lamp lighting, they also had coal-fired stoves. So the coal-fired stoves were... Right, and this was in November, Mm -hmm. yep. So the westbound train, these these trains hit Mm head-on. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the westbound train, number 1716, was a steel train car, a, a troop passenger train, and um, the conductor was J.W. Reichert, and his engineer was J.L. Fickling. Um, and they had failed to heed a stop warning and wait at the Muskogee Junction for the circus train to pass. So they hit head-on at high speed. Yeah, okay, so here's the math class thing I was talking about. If you have one train traveling at 35 miles, westbound at 35 miles an hour, and another train eastbound at 30 miles an hour, you have a 65-mile-an-hour crash head-on. You use those combined vectors, and that, yeah, it was incredibly, even though they weren't going all that fast combined, it was really fast. And they, they derailed. The initial, the, the engines and the cars behind started to derail. The wooden cars obviously began to catch fire. They also telescoped, I think, because of the, the, uh, the impact. And um, in, the, in the immediate aftermath of that, the Con T. Kennedy, who was the owner of the show, who had just lost his wife a year earlier, she had passed away. Mm-hmm. He led the efforts. He, he, he was further back in the train, saw what happened, jumped out, started to uh, go through the wreckage and try to rescue people and to pull people out. Yeah, he was working, according to reports, he was, he was really working hard, really, and, and tears running down his face while he was trying to save his people. Yes, because they were like a family to him, and they had been with him and supported him when he lost his wife. And so this was, you know, they were very close. They traveled together. They spent their days together. They worked together. They were all close, like family. Mm-hmm. In this in this train, there was a combination of animal cars and sleeper cars for the pe- for the performers. Right. And so the caravan that caravan included these are some of the acts: a cage of death. A Wild West show. They had Siamese twins and dwarves. A Coney Island side show. They had wild animals. Professor A.U. Eslick's 27-piece brass band. And a Ferris wheel that made your stomach churn when it took you up above the treetops. Yeah, that, that's so a cool one. Those. those are amazing. Yeah, the Cage of Death nowadays <laughs> is, is, have one of those. is motorcycles in a cage. So I don't know what the cage of death would have been there. Mm-hmm. Bicycles or, I don't know, probably with a wild I mean, animal. Yeah. <laughs> bicycles. Probably. <laughs> yeah, bicycles running around in circles. Those ones with the really big wheels, yeah. you know. It would be deadly. <laughs> That's right. One of the main attractions there was Kemp's Model City. Now, Fred Kemp had built this in his corner of his garage when he was 16 till he was in his 20s and his brother one of his brothers helped him and it was a small city well not the model city like we had in love canal 
but it was it was an actual model city with little little buildings and little you know cars and everything else and the cars would go around on tracks that were built into the into the bottom of it it was so detailed that it had for example in one of the one of the buildings you could see through the window a man in a rocking chair rocking he was moving and also there were there was these bright blue flashes that came from the welding building i mean it was extremely detailed and it was quite a fascinating thing to look at as a matter of fact you can still see the replacement one that his brothers built after his death kpac historical museum in michigan i saw some pictures of it in video and it it's it is amazing so he had his brother with him so that they could load and unload this model city because it was four feet wide and it was 40 feet long. So it was broken into sections and they had to break it down and store it. And then when they got to where they were going, they'd take it out and they'd have to set it up and plug in all the electrical things that made the lights go and the cars go around and everything. So it took two people to handle that. He was also married to his wife, Blanche, and they had a little two-year-old girl named Hazel Helen Kempf. I read a story about the daughter. It said, Fred and his brother Irving operated Kemp's Model City. It was a mechanical community that his, that the father, Fred, spent his teenage years assembling in their garage. So it was four days before Thanksgiving when the season was coming to an end and the circus was on its way from the Atlanta Exposition where it set records for money in attendance. Also, the other thing that Fred did was he saw at one of the Michigan at the Detroit Auto Show in 1911, he saw a Crit touring car. It's K R I T. And it was a big touring car and he just he had that mechanical mind and he just decided that he could take that and convert it into a uh, living quarters. And and the interesting thing about the Crit touring car is they all had a medallion on the front and it said K R I T around like K on K at the 12 o'clock position, R at the 3, I at the 6, and then T at the 9. And, and it circled a swastika. And the swastika, because this was before World War II, the swastika originally was a good luck sign, kind of like a shamrock and or four-leaf clover. And so it was interesting to see the pictures of that car that had that medallion on it. But he bought one, and then he spent $8,000 in 1912 dollars and converted it into the living quarters for him, his wife, Blanche, and their baby girl when she was born. Uh, rolling down the tracks, the crit was a comfortable home. And on the night of November 21st, they packed up for the trip to Columbus, Georgia, in their crit. So he was a mechanical, real mechanical genius guy. And uh, I can... I don't, couldn't find a picture of his car after the conversion, but I imagine it was a little camper. They all traveled together in that, in that, um, that group, and the people who were involved in this accident, all like family. And when the accident happened, um, Fred and Myrtle were trapped in the train wreck. Fred and... And physically trapped. Fred and Blanche. Because of the debris. Right. Uh, Fred and... and Blanche, okay. Yeah, one of the reasons... Had, oh, she has two names. Yeah. One of the reasons that they were that they were killed was 
because the regulars knew that they needed to be at the rear of the train away from all the noise and all the smoke and dirt and rumbling, but it cost money. And because it said, the quote is, being a frugal German, Kempf didn't bribe the train master, so their touring car was on a flatbed car just behind the engineer and his crew. So they were right up at the front. And so they would have been among the first ones killed, especially since the train engineer and the firemen of both trains jumped out before the collision. So they were, that's where they were. So they were trapped in the wreckage, Mm -hmm. right? They were trapped in the wreckage, but when rescuers came, they handed their two-year-old daughter off to the rescuers because they were not able to get out themselves, but they didn't want her to perish in, in the accident. And so they later were identified by um, his brother from a necklace that she wore and from a watch that he wore. That's right. And so, but their little daughter was, was, was handed off to people and she did have some burns, but she was hospitalized and, and fared pretty well. And she became like the sweetheart of the, the train wreck story. Um, They, everybody knew about her. Yeah, there was some articles from the time that said that she she had become the darling of Columbus because that's where she were while she was healing in the hospital. And although they didn't have any pictures, there were daily reports about her progress in the newspaper. And at one point, everybody was really happy to read that she was actually sitting up and she was eating sugar cubes at the hospital with the doctors. And so she, she did. She became the little darling of Columbus for the, while she was there. And then once she was well, her, her uncle Irving picked her up and took the remains of her parents and took them back to Michigan where they interred them in Capec, in Michigan, Capec, Michigan. Right. She later became an actress. She, they, she got a $20,000 settlement from the railroad for the death of her parents and an additional settlement from an insurance company for the... Um, for the model city d- destruction. And so she went to stay with relatives in Michigan and she was very well off. And she had a, a younger relative of hers was quoted as saying she, ha- he remembers her and he remembers seeing a picture of her with her pony that she loved dearly. So she, as a child growing up, she was well, well enough off. She wasn't, you know, it's, she had money. I don't know how much of it they actually used. but, And then when she graduated from high school, she went to drama school. And after drama school, she went to New York and she worked in some plays. And then she started getting other work. And she married a man named Lester Mack, who was an actor. He was in Funny Girl and he was in Night at Minsky's. And he was a popular character actor. And so they lived together until his death. And then she moved back to Michigan and became, um, she became kind of a, activist, a community activist. One of the things she did was she organized um, a fundraiser to buy those Jaws of Life for the local fire department. And when she passed away, Mm -hmm. I found pictures of her as an elderly woman and some of her headshots as a, as a um, actress. And she was a pleasant looking woman. And uh, apparently she was a pretty good actress too. So that's what happened to little Hazel Helen Hmm. Kemp. And there were other stories of people who, you know, had been trapped one man um, attempted to get loose and couldn't and used a hatchet to amputate his own leg mm-hmm. so that he could get out from under the blazing wreckage. And he did survive. I'm not sure what happened after he lost his leg. 
they were able to identify the penny arcade operator because he had melted pennies in the pocket of his trousers. Mm -hmm. And um, Kennedy stated that an accurate death toll could not be reached because many of the hired laborers were not listed in his books and their bodies might have been destroyed in the burning cars. That's right. It said it may also have been difficult due to the damage of the fire mingling with the remains of animals and people because it was everybody. Um, R.B. Peterson, a tuba player in the circus band, described the scene on the side of Macon Road where hundreds of rescuers assembled, led by Kennedy himself, Conti Kennedy. It says, he knew what was concealed under the wreckage. The mangled and charred remains of men who had been with the company for years still reposed. A flame of blast furnace intensity had swooped down over the train and in its course ate its way over into the vitals of the showman, caught like rats in a trap. The the eye of the director of this monster organization was dimmed with tear. Not, year, not a year ago, he buried his wife. Now he was forced to stand idly by to see his coworkers burned to death. Rather, my whole train go up in smoke than one of my people who worked for me should have lost his life, Kennedy said. So he was very sorrowful. Yeah, he was. He was very involved and it was very upsetting. So they continued to work on the on the wreckage by the light of the harvest moon, which was which is good because they didn't have any lights but the fire. And a badly burned Irving Kemp, as you said, had used the jewelry, the necklace and the watch to identify um the Kemps, Blanche and Fred. Right. And only after he had done and then that he left to go to the hospital. He went to the hospital, right. So the people burned beyond recognition. There were three, and they buried them in Riverdale Cemetery, and they fashioned a headstone in the shape of a circus tent. And then for years afterwards, circuses traveling through the area held memorial services at the great site. Of course, we talked about the Penny Arcade um, operator. The fire burned two carloads of people and animals. Um, they perished in that in that horrible accident. Um, the deceased inclu- included Whitey, a carnival worker, George Johnson and Milton Andrews, and of course, Fred and Myrtle Kemp. Blanche. Fred and Blanche Kemp. <laughs> Not sure which one. Yeah. Whatever. Uh, many of the animals were killed in the wreck. Word that an angry circus bear was on the loose lured hunters from town, but the fate of the animal was never reported. Colorful parrots flew away, but a gaggle of monkeys did not escape. Frightened and frantic, they jumped into trees next to the real bed. Circus people, knowing that they would hamper rescue efforts, got guns and shot the monkeys out of the trees. Hmm, that's interesting. So, that how, was, if they, unless they were like gorillas, I don't understand how they would have hampered the rescue efforts, the monkeys, unless they were just jumping on people. But if they were up in the trees... Yeah, well, I imagine they were trying to... Yeah, panicked or whatever. Maybe they were jumping around and interfering with people. I don't know. Yeah. but um, So they were euthanized. The sh- right. Now, on the, the memorial that they had on Thanksgiving Day in 1915, which was two days or three days after the actual event, the women of, the Columb- of Columbus served the circus workers a dinner. A funeral was held at First Baptist Church, and a procession to the Riverdale Cemetery was accompanied by the circus band using borrowed instruments. Kennedy also played in that band, and they erected the circus tent-shaped memorial with this inscription, We'll not forget who stay and work a little longer here. 
Thy name, thy faith, thy love shall be on memory's tablet, bright and clear. And when o'erwearied by the toil of life our heavy limbs shall be, will come and one by one lie down upon clean Mother Earth with thee. So it was a it was a sorrowful time. Yeah, it was. But they borrowed equipment and the Conti Kennedy show carnival opened at their engagement in Phoenix City as they had planned. Mm-hmm. So they didn't let that stop them. They said the show must go on. They borrowed things. They yeah. begged things from different circuses and well. This the funeral was actually quite a big deal because you said that the band the the band was playing and um, apparently at the, as they crept down the street to the, to the church they were playing Rock of Ages and then there was a minister named Christy and he preached about a, a sermon about God's omnipotence and about the haven he offers in the darkest of hours which is a which is a pretty appropriate for the situation. And when he was done, members of the Masonic Order took charge of the bodies of Fred and Blanche, and worshipful Master Early Johnson performed the Order's ancient rituals before their bodies were taken to Riverdale, except that Fred and Blanche didn't go to Riverdale. Or if they did, they put them in a crypt until they could be moved back to Michigan. It was temporary repose. Right. Yeah. I believe it was a temporary repose. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So the fault of the accident at the inquest that followed uh, was the blame was placed on J.W. Reichert and J.L. Flicking Fickling for disobeying instructions to side at Muskogee Junction as directed until the carnival train heading the opposite direction passed. So they um, didn't obey the signal to stop. And there again, it was such a tragedy because the train that they were running was a steel train and the train that Kennedy was running was mostly wooden cars. And so it suffered a great deal more damage than the train of the, the oncoming train. Mm -hmm. You know, you come away with it that there were regulations and things they were supposed to observe and they didn't. And so that was what caused so many fatalities and such loss of life. Okay. So we've, covered that stuff and it's been yeah, I think just, covered all that just over an hour so I think we'll stop there right so that's that's the circus train wreck history <laughs> two of the many circus trains that crashed in America the bottom line in both situations was human error there was uh, you know a tr- an engineer that fell asleep there were people who didn't observe the signals that they were given, and it cost a great deal of human life and suffering and sorrow. Um, so that's one of the reasons why we have safety we have safety accommodations and we have safety rules because when they're violated, it it causes innocent people to suffer. And the people in the first wreck were sound asleep when they hit. They didn't even know what happened, and you think of just how horrifying it must have been to wake to a screaming inferno and people yelling and, and the suffering that was going on around them. You know, it's beyond my comprehension. That's for sure. Human error is in these kind of situations. It just takes one little slip, one little ignoring a rule or bit cutting a corner and it can cause a lot of damage and injury. 
That's right. So consumer protection so agency. Away from this, observe safety rules. That's right. <laughs> and lift with your legs. Well, thank you for taking the time and doing the circus trains. I actually really enjoyed looking up. The, the Kemp's absolutely fascinate me. So that that's interesting mm-hmm. to me and the model city and all that. But you can find pictures of right. Hazel Helen Kemp online, Kemp, K-E-M-P-F, Kemp. And you could see what she looked like when she was an actress and, and uh, what her husband looked like. And it's just really interesting. And that model city is amazing. Go to the KPAC, C-A-P-A-C, Historical Museum site and look at the model city. All righty. Well, it's been interesting doing this disaster tale. And we look forward to the next one. Yes. Well, goodbye, farewell. Oh, Peter, say, what is that? Goodbye, farewell. Oh, Peter, say goodbye. Yeah. So long, farewell. I, I hate to go and leave this anus side. Okay. All right. Disaster Tales theme music is by Stephanie Cerny. You can check out our website at www.disastertales.com and you can contact me at kate at disastertales.com. Thank you for listening. Today's disaster tip is talk to your neighbors. The advent and widespread use of air conditioning has isolated us from our neighbors. I remember a time when a person could walk down the street and listen uninterrupted to a ball game because the neighbors would be on their front porches listening to it. But in a disaster, your neighbors will be your first responders. Go out and meet them. Find out who's out there, how many in each household, and if there's anyone in your neighborhood with special needs. Talk about what the local hazards are, the warning system, and who might need transportation in an evacuation. It's important to help one another in a disaster and check on each other in case of an emergency because depending on the scope and duration of the disaster, help may not be available for the next few days.